Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 63, Art and Biblical Literature with Dr. Matthew Mullins. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're discussing art and biblical literature with Dr. Matthew Mullins, who is Associate Professor of English and History of Ideas and the Associate Dean for Academic Advising at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And he's also the author of Enjoying the Bible, Literary Approaches to Loving the Bible, which came out in early 2021 with Baker. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Amber Bowen, Grace Emmett, Dr. Chris Porter, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So this is the third installment in our series on art and culture. What were some of the key takeaways that you all had from our time with Dr. Mullins? Well, today we're going to be talking with Dr. Mullins about his new book that just came out with Baker Academic. And essentially in this book, Dr. Mullins challenges our idea that we have to go to the Bible strictly as an instruction manual, that we have to go and like mine it for these particular nuggets of truth that we then figure out how to apply in our lives. And um, it's something that we go to for information. Uh, and he really emphasizes the literary aspect of it to to help us understand how to read the Bible in a way that includes not just our heads, but our hearts and our guts. A significant part of this conversation, which I think our listeners are going to really enjoy, is that the conversation moves from how do we understand cognitively the Bible to how do we feel and how do we engage with it with our hearts? How, do, how is the Bible then uh, not just a tool, but the thing that we love for Christian formation? And how does that work for us as individuals and also for our communities as a whole? Yeah, and I really enjoyed the conversation we had towards the end about what does it mean to listen to texts that we're used to reading and how does that help us to hear, read in a different way? Um, And also what the relationship is between biblical texts and literature and whether we can kind of turn some of those reading strategies back in the other direction. Yeah, and, and and by the end we're we're talking Harry Potter and all these fun things, and so it's a it's a really a rich and an enjoyable conversation. And so, without any further ado, here's the discussion. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Mullins. Thank you all so much for having me. So how about we begin, given that the subtitle of your new book is Literary Approaches to Loving the Scriptures, I wonder if we could begin by hearing a little bit about why we'd want to read the Bible as literature at all. Yeah, so the answer to that question is also the backstory of the book. So for years of teaching literature in a Christian college context, what always would throw me off semester by semester is We'd come to the first poet, for instance, in my survey of American literature class, we'd come to Anne Bradstreet or Phyllis Wheatley, and the students would voice pretty universal laments about having to read poetry, that it was confusing, that it was hard to understand, that it felt like the author was somehow trying to make them hunt for the real meaning, which was behind the words or down deep, hidden somewhere. And the more I got to think about this, the more I started wondering, well, aren't we people who really love the Bible, and yet the Bible is like at least one-third poetry, no matter how you cut it, and the rest of it is is very literary. Not very much of the Bible is actually kind of just prescriptive, explanatory prose, in fact, though uh, perhaps that's mostly what gets preached sometimes, I think, perhaps in evangelical circles. And so I started thinking, like, do they hate the Bible like they hate poetry? Then I started thinking about myself, like, do I? actually enjoy the Bible, like I love to read poetry, or like I love to read novels or watch my favorite show on Netflix or, you know, jam to my new favorite uh, artist's record that's coming out. And I started to think like, wow, there is this dissonance in my own life between my understanding of literature and my understanding of the Bible, despite the fact that I've grown up reading the Bible my entire life, I haven't really given a lot of thought or been asked to give a lot of thought to its more literary or pleasurable or enchanting dimensions. And so 
I started working on this book, both for my students and for myself, because I thought, hey, maybe if I could change the way I think about what the Bible is as a work of art, as well as this divine book, and also change my approach to it and start reading it a little bit more like I would read a work of literature, I might actually come to enjoy it and love it like I love literature. And if I come to love the Bible better, my hope is that that would cultivate enjoyment and the only ultimate end of enjoyment, which would be God. And if I come to love God better, then hopefully I, I would come to love my neighbors better as well. And so that's kind of the genesis of the project. Literature is kind of specifically designed to appeal to our emotions. It shocks and captivates and enchants and delights us at, at every turn. And so I thought, wow, if I could really get myself, my students, my friends to read the Bible like that, they might come to love it better. Dr. Mullins, I loved reading your book. I just finished it yesterday. And one of the things that you talk about throughout the book is um, seeing with Cartesian eyes that we have this problem um, in our society that we're kind of raised to see with Cartesian eyes and that that leads to a hermeneutic of information. Um, can you unpack that a little bit more for us? What does that mean? How did we get that? And what are the consequences of that? Sure, I should say right off the bat that the language, that actual phrase Cartesian eyes is lifted directly from the work of James K.A. Smith at Calvin University here in the United States. So Cartesian eyes is not my phrase. Um, I took that from his uh, Desiring the Kingdom book and then the kind of popularized version of the trilogy, You Are What You Love. And what I found in Smith's articulation of Cartesian eyes was kind of the words for a hermeneutic that I had been trying to understand and wrap my mind around. And it was kind of one of those experiences where I read his articulation of that. And I thought, yes, that is the name for the thing that I've been trying to, to understand and to explain in this book. So the basic idea is pulled from Descartes. Of course, you know, most famously is going to be known for uh, philosophy types for the famous phrase, you know, I think, therefore I am. And what Smith unpacks out of that phrase is this idea, uh, almost like an anthropology, uh, a philosophy of, of the human that really reduces us to primarily thinking things, or kind of, he says, uh, hilariously, you know, brains on sticks, which is a pretty great and disgusting image. If you think about like a jiggly brain on the end of a stick kind of being wa uh, walked around, pretty disturbing, but really captures the idea here. So the, the brain on a stick view of the human person is this idea that I'm just a, I'm mostly a brain and I guess I have this body, but my body and my feelings, my emotions, all of that proceeds from my thoughts. So I'm a top down brain first type creature. And if that's the case, then if I need to change something about who I am or I need to learn something, what needs to happen is that my brain needs to be informed so that my brain can then tell the rest of me to change. And of course, what Smith is most well known for is challenging that really Cartesian approach to anthropology and saying, no, we're not just brains. We are embodied creatures who are driven at least as much by what we desire and love as, as we are by what we think. And the, the classic example is, is that I mentioned in the book and that Smith talks about as well is how many sermons have I heard you know, on the same topic or the same subject that re-inform me of something I already know, and yet I continue to not do the thing. I mean, St. Paul says, you know, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I know I should do. And so knowing alone is kind of uh, not enough in Smith's formulation. It's not unimportant, but it's not the whole thing. It's not the sum totality of what it means to be human. And so I kind of just took Smith's uh, philosophical meditation on anthropology and said, well, what would that mean for reading? And this fits into the original question that John was asking, because uh, what I would say is that to read with Cartesian eyes is mostly just to read, looking for whatever you're reading has to say to your brain. How is it trying to inform me? And so I began to ask the question, OK, what would it mean to read with more than just my eyes then? How would I read, uh, for instance, in the book, I talk about reading with your guts. So if, if uh, you know, you're not just a brain, how would you read with your heart? For example, how would you read with your body? How would you read with your emotions? Because if it's not enough just to change my mind in order to change my behavior and how I live and breathe and move and all that, then I need to learn how to read in such a way that's going to capture my heart and not just my, my mind. 
And that's why literature is kind of the ideal way in, because literature is aimed at your imagination, at your guts. It's trying to move you all the time. Well, could I play devil's advocate here for a minute and say, you know, I, I went to seminary and one of the things that is discussed a lot is we can't just read the Bible on the basis of how we feel and on the basis of our feelings. And when I read the Bible, it shouldn't be just my emotions. Uh, but there's actual real truth in the Bible. And so we should read the Bible on the basis of objective truth, not just how it's making us feel. Um, what would you say to those those people who kind of ha operate according to, you know, there's the objective truth of the Bible, and then there's these kind of private subjective feelings truths. And really what we're after is, is capital T truth, which is objective. How would you engage with that? Yeah, I mean, that's such a, a big, important hermeneutical question. And it comes, it's that, the question itself, right, comes out of that Cartesian view of the human subject that, that says, you know, I'm primarily a brain. And so I've got to set my emotions aside because those things are actually obstacles to my ability to comprehend since comprehension is defined almost exclusively in terms of intellectual understanding. And this is in fact, like what I think is the most important claim in the book is that I'm not out to argue that understanding is intellect plus we need to add emotion. Right? That, that would be one way of making the argument that emotion is involved in understanding is to say it's like kind of head plus heart, mind plus guts, uh, uh, intellect plus affect. And I'm, and I'm really saying that in fact, understanding isn't the, a combination of, of those two things because they're not separable to begin with. So there's this, this is a, really a lot more apparent in the Hebrew Bible, and, and the biblical scholars here are gonna maybe be able to, to help me out, but um, Ellen Davis, who teaches uh, at, at Duke, has this great quote in an interview with, with Krista Tippett in her podcast on being, where she's talking about the image of the heart in biblical physiology. And what she says is something like, the heart is the center of our emotions in biblical physiology, yes, but also of our intellect. And those two things actually can't be separated in biblical physiology. And so she says that what's beautiful about literary language, poetic language in particular, is that it's precise, it's detailed, it's realistic, but it's just, it's not the language of discursive fact. So right off the, off the bat, what I would say is that if you're trying to read the, the poetry of the Bible, or maybe the, the more literary elements of the Bible more broadly, with this kind of discursive, objective fact hermeneutic, that you're already kind of foreclosing your ability to fully comprehend those passages. And I, I understand this objection. In fact, it's kind of the most common objection uh, to the book that because uh, we don't trust our emotions. But we all know that there is an emotional element to understanding, an emotional intelligence, an emotional element to comprehension. And the easy example of this is it's one thing to counsel or to support a friend who's gone, going through, let's say, a really serious loss of a close loved one. Let's say something tragic like, you know, the loss of a parent. It's one thing to support them and love them through that, to say, hey, you know, I, I really sympathize with you. Uh, but if you've never lost someone really close to you like that, there is an element of understanding that is just not accessible to you because it's something that through your own affective experience, you haven't been through. And so there is a way in which you can't fully understand what your friend is going through without that kind of emotional affective experience. And so that, in, in fact, your understanding of, of their trauma and of their pain is incomplete. And then once you've gone through something like that yourself, you're able not only to support them through that, but to actually comprehend what they are experiencing. And so I would say that kind of trying to cut your emotions out of the understanding process is actually shutting down your ability to understand in full. And this is a, a pretty classic problem for us who live in the, in the modern and in the, in the post-enlightenment era because of that Cartesian legacy. We, we think of ourselves as being divided both internally, you know, between like who the world perceives me to be and who I might be deep down inside that I might not be aware of. But then there's that external separation from the world. There's me. I think, therefore, I am. And then the doubt that intervenes between me and the rest of the world. And so when it comes to reading, we think of ourselves as kind of over and above or separated from the object that we're trying to understand. 
But the problem is the more we try to set our own emotions and biases and presuppositions to the side, right, the less we are aware of them and the less we're actually able to work through them to kind of come to the place where we can see what the text is trying to do. And so my, my kind of just direct response is, I don't think you can understand without emotion. And the posture that you bring up is so important because when we treat the Bible as this object, right, which a lot of times people who talk about objective truth in certain ways really mean objectivized truth. They mean the Bible is this object that I'm a subject kind of standing over it and I'm mining it for the nuggets of truth that I can pull out. Right. Um, which is, there's a lot of like exploitation, even in those kinds of metaphors. Right. But what happens is, especially when we remove the emotions out of it and we're just kind of pulling out these nuggets of truth, we really kind of have our way with the text. We're, we're really making it serve our categories and answer our particular questions and in many ways say what we want it to say, um, as opposed to the text confronting us, which oftentimes occurs through the affective dimension. Yeah, and I would say, actually, there, there is a kind of delight and pleasure in that. The idea of getting to the real kind of the idea of the objective or the real meaning, but most of the delight that we derive from that is actually the uh, kind of a prideful delight. Like I have become the detective who solved the case, and now because I have mastered the text, I'm in this position of authority over the text, rather than the authority being uh, the uh, text being an authority over me. And I, hey, I don't deny. You know, the psalmist tells us, "Delight yourself in the laws of the Lord." I don't deny that there's a kind of delight in there. But I wonder if that is a kind of twisted delight rather than the kind of delight that is derived from actually longing for the text. When we read a, a, a poem in the Psalms that is about longing, you know, because we are being kind of held captive by the text rather than trying to captivate it or tie it out. Or as the poet Billy Collins says, you know, kind of strap the poem to a chair and beat a confession out of it. Uh, there, there is a kind of pleasure in that. But I don't think really, that it's the kind of pleasure that the Bible is trying to cultivate uh, in us. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that's so interesting, sort of thinking about how do we allow the text to challenge us rather than feeling like we're always going into combat with the text, kind of trying to master it. So how do we sort of move out of that hermetic of information? How do we kind of bring more of ourselves and try and experience more of the emotion involved in the text, um, sort of where that's kind of a better approach? One of the kind of approaches that I've taken in my own life, and thanks, Grace, that's actually, I, I hope, the, the thrust of the entire book, like this is what I hope will be most important about the book, is that it will give people strategies, tools, really practical things uh, for how to read the, the text itself. And uh, I talk about a couple of different things in there, but one of the ones that's been really helpful for me, I actually took from Alan Jacobs, who's a humanities professor at Baylor University. And uh, Jacobs has this really great book that I'd highly recommend called The Pleasures of Reading in an Age of Distraction. And in that book and elsewhere, he's talked about reading at whim. And I'm not kind of advocating that we, you know, set aside Bible study or uh, reading for whatever you're doing for small group or church or, or, what, or whatever. I'm not suggesting doing this in place of that. But what I have found is that picking up the biblical text kind of how I would pick up a volume of poems or a novel that I really just am reading for pleasure and saying, hey, I'm, I'm really into, I, I really just like to read a good story today, or, you know, I just have this verse, this passage that keeps coming back to my mind, and just kind of reading at whim. So in other words, not sitting down with a very specific outcome in mind, like I'm sitting down today to learn this thing, or I'm sitting down today to memorize this verse, or I'm sitting down today to review what was said in the homily or the sermon or whatever this last week, rather just sitting down and picking up a text that you want to read because you want to read it. And kind of coupled with that, I, I talk about this from a literary perspective in the book. And then I was, I was talking with um, Jessica Hooten Wilson in an interview about the book back in December. And she brought this up that I hadn't thought about at the time when I was writing the book. And I've since listened to a couple of podcasts on it and, and done a little research. But she said, you know, one of the times in the book where you're talking about how to go about reading the text by focusing on its literary uh, dimensions sounded a lot to, to me like the Ignatian contemplative prayer practice. 
And I didn't know much about that tradition. And then I, I listened to Father Jim Martin, who's kind of a really famous proponent of this practice and did some research and reading on my own. And the, the basic gist of it for, for the listeners is a long old tradition uh, from the, from the, from, that comes from St. Ignatius that's still practiced in some of the Catholic orders in which you kind of envision yourself in prayer in one of the scenes, especially in the Gospels. I mean, I imagine you could do it anywhere, but most of the, the literature that's out there on it focuses on the Gospels. And so just a concrete example of this, I was, sit, I was sitting down and just reading in the Gospel of Mark a couple of weeks ago. And I was, I think I was, I was in Mark three or four, and I was trying to do this practice. I was picturing myself in the scene and Jesus and his disciples are going into the synagogue and the teachers of the law are there. And that's where the man with the, the shriveled hand is in the synagogue. And the, the teachers, of course, are waiting to see, is Jesus going to heal him on the Sabbath? And Jesus obviously knows what they're thinking. And so he asks the question specifically of whether or not it's lawful, you know, to, to withhold from someone what is good or to, to heal on the Sabbath. So he gives them a legal question on which they should all purportedly be experts. And of course, they just remain silent because there's not a good answer available to them based on how Jesus has set the question up. And then that's when they storm out. And Mark, anyway, makes this comment. Um, Mark's Jesus has pissed them off so royally because now they run out and start talking about how to kill him at that point. And I was imagining like being in the room, maybe like one of the disciples or just one of the people watching and imagining the tension between Jesus, everyone knowing what's at stake and the teacher sitting over there and Jesus asking the question. And I just thought, dude, you got to ask him that, man. Like, could, do we, you got to stir this thing up right now. Like, why? And of course he asks them and they don't answer. And what stuck out to me most that I just never really thought about before was that word lawful. He puts it to them in the field in which they're supposed to be experts. And so he doesn't simply put them in a bad situation. He shows them that they're not even experts in the things that they think they are. And that's why they are so mad. He's, he's challenged their intellectual, their prideful you know, position in the community. And that's why they're like, we're ready to kill this guy now. And I, and I thought in that moment, just being in the, in the scene, like what a kindness, like what is the law for? The law is ultimately to enable us to do good to others. And Jesus is the one that shows us what to do with the law on the, on the Sabbath. Man, I, you know, just open it up for me. So reading in these different kind of ways, not uh, with some end goal in mind, trying to kind of pay attention to the language, the scene, the setting, these more literary features of the text. And then this Ignatian practice of kind of trying to imagine myself uh, in the text has really been helpful for me in helping me come back to the same passages, camp out, spend more time, and really just reflect and meditate. That's really helpful. And I, I wonder what you have to say about more apologetic reading practices and contrasts. Um, so, for example, there are a handful of commentaries that I, you know, would read on the Gospels, and it seems like you, you flip the page and the argument is, you know, this happened, flip the page, this also happened, flip the page, and this happened too, you know, and, and, and you just kind of get the sense of like, we're losing the, the literature, we're losing the, the literary conventions, the tropes, these sorts of things. Um, I, I've heard, you know, Peter Enns talk about how kind of like this sort of way of reading makes us unable to read the Bible, actually, uh, because it's, you know, different types of literature that want to be read in different ways. And I've heard Michael Heiser say something, perhaps, you know, stated a bit controversially, you know, if we could only read the Bible like fiction, we'd understand it better. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about this, because I, I do notice that when we, you know, when I talk about Harry Potter with my students, we can catch the, the harbingers and the themes and, you know, these sorts of things. But in, in the biblical texts, it's sometimes harder to, to notice a lot of that stuff or, to, or to, to, to appreciate how the authors are doing very similar literary things. I wonder if you could speak to some of that. Yeah, I think so. I'm certainly not an expert in apologetics. And I should say, I'm always really wary and skeptical of apologetics, to be honest, because it makes, it makes me nervous that from the outset, we're going to prioritize some type of proof or reason as why someone should pursue Christ. And this is also wrapped up in the idea of religious faith as reducible to some type of intellectual belief 
And yet we know that even the demons believe, right? I mean, but belief in that intellectual sense of I assent to the existence of God is integral. Like I, I'm not denying that. Um, but I think about belief in maybe a slightly more multifaceted sense and more in the sense of sitting across from someone that's obviously in existence and saying, you know, I, I believe in you. <laughs> And so I I don't think of belief in God primarily in terms of this notion of assenting to God's existence, but more of like this, uh, the the analogy falls apart, right? Because he's obviously the one who needs to believe in me. Um, But, but, but this notion of not about the, the mere ontological existence, but of this affirmation of relationship and of resonance and of being together. So I, I just want to preface anything I might say next by saying I'm not an apologist. I'm not an expert in apologetics, and I tend to be skeptical. So um, I don't want to put a, a bad face on apologetics when perhaps someone could do a much better job of showing the upside than I could. Um, but I think it kind of falls back into that Cartesian way of reading. Whereas if we could learn to read the biblical text as the work of art, that it is. I mean, this is a diverse collection of texts kind of that we have handed down to us, you know, in a canon that the text, the writers of the text themselves didn't know of the existence of the other texts. I mean, there's, there's such a diverse and, ecu- and ecumenical and wild and crazy collection of things. And so to try to shoehorn it into this one intellectual set of propositions seems to me to not only be like Uh, problematic in terms of understanding, but also a little intellectually dishonest to what the texts are, to not accept them on their own terms. Whereas I I think what I'm trying to do in the the book is honor a bit more of the, the text's structure themselves, and also honor kind of the preconceived forms of reading that we bring to them in order to try to allow this dialogical or this back and forth process to bring the text and the reader a little bit closer together across vast amounts of, of space and time. Excellent. In terms of the apologetic nature of, of text, it strikes me often that the aim of, of these sort of readings of, I think called strip mining a text, I guess, uh, for its propositional nuggets is very, very much akin to uh, a means of trying to gain change of desire or change of of um of the heart by uh placing visual aids for uh personal change which is you know what a whole bunch of every year down here in australia year changes in the middle of summer so you get all the um all the trashy mags talking about new year's resolutions and how you have to stick a uh uh, like a picture of the body type you want with your your passport photo above it oh, on no. the mirror every morning, uh, all the, all these sort of things. They're, they're they're really crude ways of trying to change change your body type or or get your your outcome by just sheer exertion of the will. And yet, uh, one of the things that you've you've hinted at here is that uh, with the Cartesian dualism, actually desire is is a much greater impact here. It strikes me when we treat the uh, the biblical narrative as literature, uh, when we engage in things like the Ignatian contemplation you were uh, you're mentioning, this has a far more affective change for us by redirecting the desires of our heart. Uh, I'm interested though, when when you see that happen for your students, I mean you must see this semester after semester as they as they change uh, in their desires. Uh, how does that then get output in terms of Christian formation? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And the book is really kind of geared in that direction to go back to Grace's earlier question. It's not simply about trying to kind of diagnose the problem of Cartesian eyes. That's pretty much done in the first couple chapters. And the rest of the book is devoted to ways that we can kind of reimagine the, the text. And even when I think about like overt moments of apologetics, like Paul preaching in Acts or something like that, I, I think that all too often we take from that the idea that what we're supposed to do is just do what Paul did versus like whatever Luke or the writer of Acts or whatever is trying to teach us through telling us about what Paul did, right? The, through giving us this narrative. But the formation question, Chris, is, is so important. So kind of my go-to example for this when I'm first introducing it and talking to students about 
reading in this way, not just for information, whether you're reading uh, Ross Gay or Phyllis Wheatley, or you're reading the Bible, is I, I always go to Psalm 119, 105, because it's a text that they're all going to be familiar with. It's already poetry, so it's overtly literary, even on the page. It's kind of easier for, for them and for me to kind of wrap my head around. And we all know the verse, you know, uh, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And so I kind of try to set side by side a more like hermeneutics of information and then this more affective, you know, hermeneutics of love uh, that, that I'm trying to develop in the book side by side to show. I mean, both have their use, but one is more geared towards forming you as a, as a person. And the, the way I illustrate that is to kind of take the verse and say, we can all pretty readily arrive at like the intellectual component of the meaning here. And that is, if God's word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, then when I'm in a place in life when I don't know what to do or when I'm uncertain, when I don't know which direction to go, I should turn to God's word to provide me with that direction. It's, it's pretty straightforward. You might even be able to start talking about the literary components of the text in that more straightforward intellectual reading by saying, obviously, God's word is not a light. You don't flip it on. OK, you don't light it. You know, God forbid. Um, so it, but if you just kind of stop there with the notion that I should turn to God's word for direction, that's really not for most Christian readers, probably in terms of their spiritual formation. That's probably not telling them in, any information that they don't already know. We all know that. So the real question is, like, do you do it? Do you actually have you been formed into such a person who actually picks up God's word when when he when you don't know what to do? And which is the same question as, you know, do I hate the Bible or do I love it even as much as I like Netflix? It is really the same question. How have I allowed the Bible to form me? And if I haven't, if I don't turn to it when I need direction, in what ways am I thinking about it that is failing to or like prohibiting me from allowing the text to form me as a person? And so this is where the literary reading comes in with spiritual formation is that if we start to think about that as a poem and not just as a message to us about turning to God's word, we'll start to pay attention to the, the metaphorical usage of light and lamp and darkness. And so in the book, I have this little meditation where I invite people, you know, close your eyes, you know, read this passage and then close your eyes. Kind of hard to read and close your eyes, but, you know, read this passage and then close your eyes and just imagine being in like pitch dark. It's the middle of the night. You're, you're completely asleep it, and something wakes you up. You don't know what, you know, you kind of sit up out of a complete sleep. It's so dark. You can't see your hand in front of your face and you're a little bit sweaty. Your, your heart's beating. Like what woke me up? Was it a sound? Like is someone in the house? Like you're freaking out just a little bit, you know, in that moment right there, how badly do you want to reach over and flick on the light? Right. You you are jonesing for right. You're longing for the light. You are almost like impelled. You want light so badly. That's why the psalmist didn't just say, turn to God's word when you need direction. The psalmist composed a poem that is intended to evoke the same type of longing for God's word that mirrors that kind of longing for light in a dark place. And so kind of my argument, the hermeneutical argument and then the spiritual formation argument go together. One, I would say hermeneutically, when you read it, if it doesn't actually evoke that level, like if, if, if you don't just intellectually acknowledge, oh, I'm supposed to long for God's word. I still think you don't get it. If you actually long for God's word, if that makes you want to read more, I would say that's what it means to understand, actually. And so there are times I read Psalm 119 and 105 where I don't really feel compelled by the text, truthfully. And so I would say in those moments, like I'm not really getting it because if I did get it, you know, I would be compelled. It's kind of like when you're riding down the road with a friend and you got a new jam or whatever, you want them to hear the song and this song is just everything for you and you're playing it for them, you know, and you're like, oh, isn't this the best? And they're like, yeah, I mean, it's good. Yeah, it's cool. You know, it's all right. And you're like, no, 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 no. This is like, this is the one, like, this is the song. And they're like, no, it's, it's great. I get it. I get it. And you're like, no, you don't get it where right? you don't get it. That's kind of like what I mean here by understanding. And so if my, my prayer is for myself, for my students, for anyone who picks up the book is that if we start attending to that element of the scriptures, the way that it's been written, not just to tell us to turn to God's word, but to start to cultivate and compel us to turn to God's word, we might actually start to do it. And then we don't simply know we're supposed to love it. We might actually start to love it. And if we love it, we might love God. If we love God, we might love each other. You picked up on an interesting point there at, at the end, um, 
and and actually when you when you mentioned the fact that you can't read with your eyes closed uh one of the one of the aspects of uh the way that we process uh the biblical narrative is as uh, these days as written text i mean it's it's something that's in front of us that we deconstruct with our eyes um but we very rarely seem to engage with it with our ears uh as opposed to the to your example in in the car and of, of hearing a new jam. Um, interesting in your thoughts on uh, literary understanding through auditory uh, input. I mean, put performance credit aside for a second, but if we're hearing, all we're hearing on when we hear the Bible is, you know, short snippet and a Bible reading on a Sunday morning that we're then going to get an information dump from a preacher on. I'm interested actually, you know, what, what is it? Is there a change for us when we hear? large slabs of scripture read and uh, we have the opportunity to be able to place ourselves in those um, environments uh, in a more fluid way. Oh yeah, I'm so glad you asked that, especially with my, my joke earlier about reading with your eyes closed. There's an afterword in the book that's called uh, reading aloud. And so, and this was actually a suggestion from my, my colleague in Hebrew Bible, uh, Chip Hardy, who, for your listeners, uh, if you want to kind of get into Hebrew Bible, I mean, you need to just Google Dr. Hardy and check out his work. He's, he's fantastic, especially if you're interested in uh, learning Hebrew. He has a great book, um, Exegetical Gems, I think, um, on he, uh, in Hebrew from uh, Baker also. And so I, I to answer your question, Chris, so thinking about the Reading Aloud chapter, uh, Chip and I have been talking about this, and he was like, you should do a whole piece at the end about the importance of Reading Aloud. I was thinking about it originally mostly in terms of how reading aloud slows us down, but then also about how reading aloud lends itself to reading in community and how reading in community tends to sharpen us together and to also sharpen our readings because then we're not kind of locked in that isolated lone space where it's just me and the text, which is kind of like a really classic literary trope of novel reading, right? The novel, novel kind of comes of age in the 18th and 19th centuries, along with, uh, you know, industrial capitalism and the division of labor. And so in leisure time and all of this kind of stuff. And so reading becomes this much more solitary and, and lonely activity. And I think reading aloud is one of those uh, approaches that opens Bible reading back up to communal forms of reading. But um, to think about the, both the phenomenological and, and um, like the, the critical value of reading aloud, I was reading this week for myself in 1 Samuel, and I was getting to the end of chapter three, and that's the really famous chapter you all will know better than I will, y'all are Bible, Bible scholars, where um, Sam, you know, here's the voice of the Lord, and he keeps going to Eli and saying, you know, you called me, Eli's, no, man, I didn't call you. And finally, he's like, oh, that's the Lord speaking to you. Like Eli, or sorry, uh, Samuel is hearing something. So I got to the end one, um, one morning this week, Tuesday or Wednesday, I think. And um, Samuel then tells Eli what the Lord had said, which is all super bad news <laughs> for Eli. And then the last couple of verses of the chapter are, um, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up. And he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And so I got to that verse. I'm reading NIV. It's in English and I can't read Hebrew or anything like that. And so I um, emailed Chip and uh, Tracy McKenzie, another uh, prof of of, uh, Hebrew Bible here at Southeastern where I teach. And I was like, guys, what is word mean here? (laughs) The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh one. I was like, that's a big no, no, right? Appeared. That's not a thing, right? We don't see God in the Hebrew Bible. I'm pretty sure. And they were like, yeah, yeah. It's actually a really crazy verse. We were glad you brought this up. So it's the Lord continued to appear. And there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. I was like, what is word? My only Context for word would be like John thinking logos, like Greek argument, logic, like Christ as the word, or like a written text. But there's no way this is a written text, right? And Chip was like, highly unlikely that this is any kind of written text. And then he gives me this really like complex explanation I can't couldn't possibly re-articulate and I didn't entirely understand. But he said this idea of the word is much more like the word of the Lord, like this revealed perhaps even like audible auditory word 
he said maybe even something similar to like the three instances early in the chapter where God speaks audibly to Samuel in, in the night. And so, Chris, your question, man, like before there was a thing like the Bible, the only, I guess, the primary reference for thinking about the word of God was like this revealed word of the Lord, maybe somewhat anthropomorphic or audible or visionary, maybe something like that. But we have both this notion of like the vision with the appearance, which is probably not an actual seeing of like God himself, um, or so says uh, Chip, but maybe something more like a vision or something to that extent. And then here, this audible auditory idea that the word of the Lord is this kind of audible revelation. So I don't actually have an answer to your question, man, but I'm thinking about those things myself and trying to unpack what that would mean for me in thinking about the word of the Lord in ways other than just like this Bible that I've always known in like my white middle-class Western male um, American understanding of the word of God. I loved when you were talking about um, hearing and reading aloud and in the afterward, and I was I was thinking a lot about how it really is the perfect remedy for the Cartesian eyes that you talked about earlier. You know, how, how do we overcome that? And you give a lot of strategies in your book for how to kind of push against that and how to see and read differently. But the, the emphasis on hearing, even if we think about throughout the history of Western philosophy, all, all the way from the Greeks and the, the notion of logos and theory, theoria, and of just this association with the spectator and the deep connection with the eyes. So, you know, the, at the theater is where the spectators go and they watch and they observe from an outside position. Um, and so whenever we associate what the things that we associate with knowledge typically are things that are very associated with the ocular, um, with objects that we can define and categorize that are out in front of us. And, and when we know something, it's because we see it clearly in that way. So the eye has been very front and center in Western thought, but you have a lot of philosophers, particularly phenomenologists, but actually Kierkegaard really just starts to make this shift, you know, from, from the eye to the ear, but even before, before Kierkegaard and essentially what he's drawing from is this Hebrew tradition that has this emphasis on hearing God's word of address, um, scriptures as, as God speaking to us. Right. And so when you speak, when you are listening phenomenologically, what's happening is you're placing yourself in a posture of receptivity and then something is coming at you and you're simply gathering that which lays before you, which is actually Heidegger's very convoluted way <laughs> of talking about hearing and his definition of logos is gathering that which lays before you. Um, it's, it's a move of hospitality and it's, it's a move. It's a very embodied move. And it's also a move that's very much done with similar to what you would call your gut, too. Um, it's not something that you're just looking at and speculating about. It's something that you are embracing or that you are receiving. And when you're embracing it and receiving it, you're also welcoming, welcoming it in such a way that it changes you internally, right? Um, it's very formative of you. So, so yeah, I think this, this emphasis to hearing and, and listening and the posture that it takes uh, it requires for us to listen is so important, but you also brought up another thing in your book, and that was talking about poetry as rhythm, which I also thought was super fascinating because uh, I think at one point you actually were like um, kind of even spelling out the rhythm and, and you know, telling the reader, okay, listen to the rhythm of this poem. Um, and, and what you do as the reader, even reading your book, you kind of close your eyes, put the book aside and you hear it and you feel it, right? And the rhythm is tacit. It's something inside of you. It's in your gut. And so it's a way of when you're, when you're hearing something spoken out loud, the rhythm really comes forth and it kind of sinks into your gut mm. in a way that me just kind of reading privately and silently, I never get that experience. And that actually connects back to Chris's question and, and maybe enables me to offer something of of an answer in, in a way I wasn't unable to before, because I think that is exactly the picture of the word of the Lord that we get in first Samuel three, Samuel keeps hearing the word of the Lord and he doesn't know what it is. Like he doesn't understand Eli 
who has more experience, who's older, who knows what the word of the Lord is, tells him, go back and lie down, right? Go back to sleep to listen again. And he's waiting for the word of the Lord to be revealed to him, even still not understanding. Like Eli knows, but Samuel still doesn't know. And so he's waiting for the word to kind of act on him. And it is both this um, auditory, but also a physical posture because he lay, he uh, lays back down. And then in that last verse, you know, it says that um, the Lord keeps revealing himself to the, the, the Lord. The word of the Lord is the active and Samuel is, is the passive. Samuel is the one kind of receiving the world, the, the word of the Lord. And rhythm is so important because that is one of the ways that literary texts, you know, grab it, grab at our guts and pull us along. That's also how uh, poetry song uh, embeds itself like in our in our psyche and in our guts and in, in ways that we remember, you know, years and years, not not hearing a song for years. And then it, and you hear it on the radio and like uh, pieces of it, snippets come back to you and you still know the words. Right. Even though you yeah, you don't need to read it and you and you probably have never read the lyrics, you know, and yet they have been embedded in you in this kind of uh, rhythmic and, and auditory way. And some of the more kind of like oral uh, church traditions, I think, really have something to teach uh, those of us who comes from who come from much more like text driven, reading driven traditions. One of the things that, that always strikes me as I've been doing some Ignatian exercises, I was looking through, I was meditating on the uh, lectionary readings the other day. And one of them is, was Mark 4, uh, Jesus going into the boat and and uh, it took me immediately back to when I was learning Hebrew. We use Jonah uh, chapter one as our Hebrew text. Uh, and the lyrical nature of the waves crashing over the boat, the hishtabah, the hishtabah, uh, to really badly intersperse Hebrew and English in the one sentence. Uh, but the, that lyrical nature of it uh, really embeds itself in your mind. And so when you're, when, when you're thinking about Jesus lying down in the boat, which is what Jonah does. Yeah, he goes down into the boat. He goes down to Joppa, et cetera. Uh, Jesus lies down the boat in the mimicking of, which mimics Jonah's position. But the Greek, on the other hand, uh, which I was reading the, the Mark 4 in, has none of that lyrical nature. And so I, I was wondering, you know, the intellectual part of me at the time of the exiles was wondering, uh, for the original hearers of Mark 4, would they have remembered Jonah, would that have been the earworm that was uh, resonating in their mind, uh, to use the, the musical terminology? Um, and yeah, I think that we, because we do process things in an auditory fashion, the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible is very lyrical. It has lots of rhyme and rhythm and, and movement uh, to the text. Uh, those sort of things embed themselves in hearers, uh, which we just don't get in English as much. I think the auditory component of this conversation is so fascinating because I was listening to your book as an audio book and it was being read by someone who I'd heard narrate another audio book, which was about something completely different to do with like as a sociologist sort of narrating his time walking around New York of all things. And um, so it was really weird hearing your book and kind of being reminded of this other book and thinking, oh, that's a funny kind of pair of books to bring into conversation, which has happened by this person reading it. Um, and I've definitely found I've sort of switched to doing my Bible reading as Bible listening. And it's read by David Suchet. I don't know how well known he is in the States, actually. Um, but just hearing somebody else read biblical texts that are so familiar has a way of defamiliarizing it and helps me to kind of hear things for the first time that have always been there. But I guess I've never noticed sort of by reading it. So many times students say. And I don't know if you all have had this experience, like when they're reading a text for me on their own and then they come in and I read a lot out loud in class. Lots of times they'll just say, like, right when I finish, even though we haven't talked about it, lots of times they'll say, oh, I just I got it so much better just listening to you read it. So many times I've, so I, I, yeah, I've had that exact same experience. I, I also wonder how many students then Ezekiel 25, 17 takes on a new resonance uh, if they've watched Pulp Fiction. Uh, they hear it in Samuel <laughs> Jackson's voice. <laughs> that would certainly put it in a new light. <laughs> it's really interesting thinking about what kind of literary readings can bring to reading biblical texts, how we see sort of the Bible as literature. And I'm curious whether you think there's reciprocity there in terms of are there ways in which we read the Bible in a slightly kind of unique and sometimes a bit of a weird way, but actually helps us to read literature better. Do you find there's kind of a two way 
conversation that happens there? Yeah, that, that's a fantastic question and, and somewhat controversial in my field of literary studies because there is kind of, you know, an entire um, ongoing conversation that ebbs and flows in literary studies about like ethical reading and about like ethical interpretation uh, over and against, you know, the, the feminists or the Marxists or the post-colonial or, or whatever else. And uh, some of the writers that I cite in the book, most especially Martha Nussbaum, who's one of my favorites, she's a classicist and great legal mind philosopher. I mean, she's just brilliant. And she really belongs to that school. And in that book, Love's Knowledge, that I cite a good bit, she talks a lot and or has a whole essay about Wayne Booth, who's kind of one of the most famous kind of mid 20th century, mid late 20th century kind of ethical critics in literary studies. And I think, yeah, because I think some of the things that might obscure our ability to really enjoy and love and be captivated and shocked and surprised by the Bible um, are actually r- really useful. And I, do, and I try to, I'm, I'm at great pains in the book to say, I don't want to set those aside. I want to kind of compliment them and deepen them by getting us to develop this other kind of attachment to the text. And so I think those are wrapped up, those kind of readings though, that tend to obscure the more literary and enjoyable parts tend to be about more kind of what I would think of as like ethical criticism. What does this book have to teach me as a human person about morality, about um, interpersonal relationships, about ethics, about all all these kinds of things. And for a lot of people in in my field, like that's not a good way to talk about literature, uh, to kind of subject it to this ethical critique. And yet I think that's a, a mode of Bible reading that's really prominent that is extremely important because literary text, especially through its imaginative appeal, through its attempt to to develop and cultivate empathy in readers for the characters that we find in the text, or through its appeal in like a lyric poem where you might not have a a bunch of characters to like one central emotion, are, are certainly trying to make connections between reader, text, writer, or between two subjects. And which is always already an ethical enterprise. And so I think that kind of the, the moral way that we read the Bible for ethical instruction is actually a really cool thing that could be developed more in literary studies in that ethical field, because literature has a lot to teach in terms of morality. Oftentimes, you know, my favorite books are ones with really terrible characters in them. And so it might be teaching us through bad examples. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's one thing that we might carry over from kind of like common Bible reading approaches into the literary reading. I, I love that that question, Grace, about the reciprocity because um, I, I've I've uh, followed this one podcast called um, uh, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, um, which actually um, chooses to read Harry Potter with uh, particular uh, religious reading strategies that, like, they they do the contemplative Ignatian uh, practice, and they do other ones as well, brought, drawing from different religious traditions. And what I find so interesting about this is because they're reading Harry Potter with this, let's call it a, a hermeneutics of love, as opposed to a hermeneutics of suspicion, they do notice things about Harry Potter that like, you know, connections I wouldn't have made or even thought of. And, and it did make me think that there is something about that posture um, that is actually really helpful and important. Um, they, they they gave an example of, of you know, kind of like a, a little uh, problem that they noticed in one of the early chapters and, and this was kind of one of the inciting incidents for why they wanted to read Harry Potter in a different way, where it was like, there's the kind of cynical, skeptical way of saying, oh, Rowling made a mistake. And then there's, there's another way of saying, well, what if this was on purpose? You know, and, or like, what if this was intentional? That kind of hermeneutics of love. And I just thought that was um, so interesting. Um, and so I, I, I commend this podcast if people are, are, are interested, uh, particularly from that hermeneutical angle of what does it look like, especially for these two people who are um, secular chaplains, they don't have a sacred text for themselves. And so they're choosing a text that they love, Harry Potter, and they're reading it with these sort of religious strategies. I, I do think there is something reciprocal um, and and so I, I do love that question. I think their podcast is a great sort of uh, example of that. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, Dr. Mullins, but. It's no, I haven't heard it. I am currently reading through the entirety of the Harry Potter series with my 10 year old. And so I, I forget which one we're, we're on because all the, the titles kind of run together for him. But we started at the beginning of COVID and we're in, I think, the fifth, fourth or fifth book for sure. 
So uh, I'll have I'll have to check that out because that might help me stay engaged. <laughs> it's interesting that John's brought up uh, Harry Potter and 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 also reading Harry Potter because uh, I'm subscribed to another podcast, uh, which please, uh, where they are rereading Harry Potter, but they're they're explicitly doing it with a negative. Uh, this this run through they've done a run through already. They're doing this run through with an explicitly negative reading. So they're looking out, trying to pick up all the mm. tropes and the neg- and especially the negative ones. So the Orientalist tropes of people with turbans and hook noses and you know uh, who, how do you d- distinguish who's a villain in a narrative? Well, it's because you you pick up on these tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I, I think often with the Bible is. Uh, we don't necessarily read the same passages within near memory of each other repeatedly. Uh, we, we might read it one year and then come back to it an entire year later. If, if, and that, this is a big if a lot of the time, that if you have a yearly reading strategy, I mean, most people might return to a psalm four or five years later um, for, for the next time. Uh, be interesting in your thoughts on rereading scripture, um, this pattern of what, can, what you pick up on the second or the third or the fourth pass through. Yeah, I love that question also because I think it's another answer to Grace's really good question about what kinds of features of biblical reading might kind of transfer out into the world of literary reading. Um, and in and, and my field of literary studies, I mean, I oftentimes feel like I just will never read everything that I need to read. And so it's impossible. The idea of rereading oftentimes seems like beyond the pale. And so that's actually something that I've taken from my own devotional practices, rereading scripture, rereading texts over and over again. And I've started just reading and rereading and even meditating uh, on passages of poetry or even pieces of fiction and and nonfiction that really kind of have moved me and been meaningful for me uh, in in the past. And um, the things that you pick up on there, you know, are so manifold and multifaceted as well. But when I think about the idea of rereading scripture, um, I think about that in, in terms of kind of like that, that first reading kind of drawn from the, the hermeneutics of Paul Ricoeur and then a really great uh, literary critic by the name of Stephen Best, who's written on, on Ricoeur. And he talks about uh, a big fight in my field right now, which is about critique and post-critique. Um, and he talks about what's the difference between you know, reading for critique and reading for post-critique, what could that possibly mean? And he kind of goes back to Ricoeur and says, you have that first reading, which is um, like almost naive and it is immersive. And whether it is, oh, I'm so into this and I love this so much, or like this is terrible and horrible and I, and I hate every bit of this, that kind of initial reactive immersive reading. And, he's, and he calls that not necessarily uncritical, but something just like first reading. And then you have that second reading, which is the more critical. Now I'm reading this with my eyes open. I've seen it once before. I'm no longer as naive. And I'm kind of reading it suspiciously. I'm reading it to do the work of, of, uh, of negative critique or, or skepticism, I'm trying to understand it, deconstruct it, put, work the words against their own meanings, like do all of that kind of stuff. And then he, he talks about what, if there, anything is, if there is anything like post-critical reading, it would be that third reading where you have been like naive and immersed, you have been critical and suspicious and at, at a distance, you've done what Rita Felsky says, both like digging down and standing back from the text. And then now you've come into this like post-critical reading, which is the kind of reading um, that has taken all of that on board, the immersion of the skepticism, and now returns to the text again. And if you can, in that third reading, still find things that are useful, beautiful, enjoyable, or, or, you know, hateful and terrible that turn you off about the text, um, then that's how you know, one, I think, kind of you're making an evaluative judgment that this text is complex, that this text is worth my time, that this text is, is, is beautiful. Um, and you also begin to, I think, on that third reading, understand it. I think if you, if you just stop with suspicion, if you just stop with skepticism, then I, I don't think you're kind of going through the full understanding process. You kind of have to go through all three readings. And then I think you kind of get into the realm of comprehension. Then you can start to love the thing, I think, af- after that, you know, four, five, six. 
Well, Dr. Mullins, this has been an absolutely wonderful uh, and rich conversation. We appreciate having you on and, and hearing about uh, these ways of uh, comprehending and understanding uh, texts of scripture that go well beyond the cerebral. And so just really appreciate your insights. Thank you all so much. Thank you.